If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can open up to Philippians 4. We'll read a minute from verses 1 through 9. Good morning. We already knew that someone can have it all and not have peace. The recent celebrity suicides, like that of designer Kate Spade, even I knew that name, or food critic Anthony Bourdain, have exposed the lie of having it all. Peace can't be found in accomplishments or acquisitions, in our appearance or our experiences, in the size of our investment portfolios or the number of your Instagram followers. Christians, as many of us are this morning, know that peace can only come through being reconciled with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As it says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, even as Christians, we sometimes succumb to the doomed pursuit of a peace that has nothing to do with God's presence. Some seek peace in our reputation, the approval of our parents, the success of our children, the safety of our neighborhood, the physique we see in the mirror. But the peace which God gives is not found in favorable circumstances, and it's not found in physical blessings. Do you want the peace that God gives? Then listen to what his word says. Philippians 4, verses 1 through 9. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to keep these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the precious promise here preserved in your word that you, the God of peace, will be with us as we commit our hearts to thinking on what you tell us to and obeying the commands that you give. Father, I think that um, we can all say that every human is unified in a desire for peace in a freedom from conflict and some kind of joy. And yet we confess and we do the same. We're surrounded by those who look for peace in other places. I pray, Father, that this morning our hearts would, would be blown away by you being the God of peace, that we would be humble, that you would desire peace with us, that we would uh, be eager to have your presence and to enjoy that, to know uh, with confidence your approval, and that that would lead our hearts to 
being disciplined in our thinking and doing. In Jesus' name, amen. I just prayed about that. We really do have an amazing and gracious promise from God in verse 9. And the God of peace will be with you. This morning we'll see from God's word that those who discipline their thinking and doing will enjoy the presence of the God of peace. That those who discipline their thinking and doing will enjoy the presence of the God of peace. And that's really what we learned last week as well. Last week we focused on verse 8, which is on thinking. This week we'll focus on verse 9 and with doing, with, 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 with some review. I do want to start, though, with uh, exploring more. We talked about it last week. This motivation that Paul gives for disciplined thinking and doing. So we're going to begin with that. The motivation for disciplined thinking and doing. And Paul says at the end of verse 9, And the God of peace will be with you. And I want to start with that motivation first, even though it's at the end of the verse, so that our hearts will be eager to listen and eager to apply. With these words, we have such an open window into God's character. God desires to be with his creatures. We see that in the covenant he made with Abraham in Genesis 17:7. He says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. Really, some of what uh, Pastor John read this morning in Romans 11, we've been reading in Romans 9 through 11, is how that blessing has been extended to the Gentiles. We see in Genesis God's desire to be with us. And then uh, Josh didn't notice when he led worship this morning, but in my notes is Revelation 21.3, which he already read. That promise that God will dwell with his people. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. From Genesis to Revelation, the story of the Bible is God making a people for himself. The truth that God desires to be with sinners is a testimony to his grace, that he desires a relationship with sinners, that he would accept as rebels, his ch- uh, accept as children, those who were rebels, to adopt rebels as his children is unimaginable. How God could be at peace with any sinner is a mystery that's only solved by the gospel, that we can have peace with God through our Lord through our Lord Jesus Christ, by him taking the punishment that we deserve. I want to ask that this morning, and it's miswritten, uh, uh, and that was my fault, in, in, in your notes, what is Paul's emphasis in the God of peace, not in the God peace, in the God of peace? What is this peace that God gives? The word peace in English evokes many images, and you all probably have a different definition of what peace is. Maybe it's the sun setting over the ocean, a cool breeze with a cup of tea. Or maybe you think of your kids napping, and that's the epitome of peace. Maybe, and we sometimes experience this at the church office as trains go by, car alarms. Pastor John had to call the police because a car alarm wouldn't stop, and trains go by all day long. Uh, That is not peaceful. Maybe you think of peace on an international scale. When Paul used the Greek word for peace here. He used a word that had meaning both in Greek and Jewish culture. In Greek culture, the word meant the absence of conflict and the prosperity that follows, kind of like we can think of when we say a time of peace. It's a time, it's a time of blessing because there's no conflict. But in Jewish culture, when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew into Greek, it used that same Greek word but it translates the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom 
was really a broader concept than just absence of conflict. It's a broader concept. It includes well-being, wholeness, harmony, prosperity, all of which ultimately come from God. The Hebrew word shalom summarizes a return to the blessings of the Garden of Eden. And there's no one verse that says exactly that, but I think that's a really healthy way of thinking about it. As they talked about peace in the Old Testament, it was the, the effects of the curse being wound back so people would enjoy blessing. If the word shalom pictured prosperity blossoming on the earth, harmony being restored in relationships, health being returned to bodies, safety secured from enemies. Ultimately, the effects of sin being eradicated was in this Hebrew concept of peace. Now, shalom in Scripture is only found in a right relationship with the one true God. In fact, the hallmark of a false prophet was someone who promised peace apart from God. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Shalom is the absence of what makes your heart ache. There's many different things. Shalom is the absence of what makes your heart ache. When Paul uh, uh, says in verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you, his Jewish background suggests more than the God who gives you a feeling of peace. Though that subjective feeling of peace isn't excluded from this Hebrew idea uh, of shalom. It's not excluded from it. And Paul means more than the God who's reconciled sinners to himself. And that's part of peace. In fact, shalom, or this biblical idea of peace, this Old Testament idea of peace, is impossible while we're still God's enemy. But instead, Paul likely meant this more full idea of peace. The God who brings shalom be with you. Last week in one of our songs, we, we, we sang that Hebrew word. The God who has ended war with himself, who has ended hostility with one another, be with you. The God who repairs what rebellion ruined, be with you. The God who has recreated us in the image of Christ, be with you. The God who brings unparalleled earthly blessing during the reign of Christ, be with you. The God who will eradicate the effects of the fall in the eternal state, be with you. The God who is, has done some of that, and the God who will certainly do all of that, is the God who will be with you. That's good news. Peace is inseparable from the good news of Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 9, 6-7, the prophecy of the Messiah says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will, be on, will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. When Jesus Christ reigns on earth, there will be peace. When the angels... Uh, Proclaim to the shepherds in the fields, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. It's not just peace with God or peace with one another. It would have been the whole Hebrew idea of peace, of the curse of sin being rolled back, of a time of unequaled blessing. In Acts 10.36 describes the preaching of the gospel, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. 
That is the peace which Jesus Christ will ultimately bring. A peace which we have begun experiencing now as we have restored relationship with Him. As we have a new heart to love and obey Him. As we enjoy relationships with one another. As, and many of us, have you've seen as you've committed yourselves to obeying God's Word, that there is an enjoyment of peace here. We know that that peace is not finished yet. And, uh, and we could spend a lot of time talking, and even Jesus says, my peace they give you, but in this world you will have, have, tri- have tribulation. We look forward to the unending state of peace that God is going to bring. So there's an important question here as we look at verse 9, though. So we've read about this incredible God of peace. This God who has these great designs for humanity and a great plan for his earth. But at the end of verse 9, it says, and the God of peace will be with you. Which is an interesting phrase, right? Because if you have Jesus Christ, isn't the God of peace always with you? And yet Paul uh, says that those who, uh, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. There's a logical connection between those two phrases. Practice and the God of peace will be with you. So maybe, and leads to our next question there, isn't the omnipresent God, the God who is everywhere, always with you? If you have new life in Jesus Christ, if you've been reconciled to God, don't you always have the God of peace? Paul hasn't forgotten his theology. Scripture is clear that God is everywhere. Proverbs 15.3 describes God's presence. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. We know that God is not limited by, by any physical space. He is infinite. In Psalm 139, verse 8, the psalmist says, If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. But God is not always present to bless. Amos describes the futile attempt of God's enemies trying to run from him. And listen to these words of Amos in Amos 9, verses 2 through 4. Though they dig into Sheol, from there will my hand take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there will I bring them down. Though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it will slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. And that is the reality of God's presence if you are not right with the Lord Jesus Christ. God is present, but he is not present to bless you. You may be enjoying some of his grace now, but that will not last. God will be present in hell. We sometimes describe hell, and I don't know if you, you, you've heard it as, as this way in place in the past, a place where God isn't. Well, that's theologically wrong. God is everywhere. He's just not present to bless. In fact, the opposite is true. In hell, God is present to punish in perfect eternal justice. What a terrifying prospect to be for the forever enemy of God, to be forever in God's presence, not to bless, but in opposition to him, defiant to him as he continues to pour out punishment upon you. Sinner, how can you sleep knowing that you are risking that for eternity? If you die tonight outside of Jesus Christ, you forfeit any potential of any peace, of any blessing for eternity. You will only know the unmitigated punishment of God's wrath. 
Run to Jesus Christ today. Flee to him because there is safety in him. Put your faith in him. Trust in his death in your behalf. You can be rescued. You can enjoy God's blessing for eternity. The God of peace will be with you for eternity. Now, as I've already said, there's a logical connection here between what Paul says. He says, and the God of peace will be with you. God is always present, but he is present in a special way to bless those who are obedient. Now, I'm not talking about your status of salvation. When God adopts you as his child, you will always be his child. But are you confident of his approval? Is he smiling upon you? And I don't mean your acceptance. If you are in Jesus Christ, if you have fled to him, if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you have put your faith in him, you know that you're always welcomed into his presence. But are you pleasing to him? The logical connection is here. Practice these things. Think these things. Dwell on these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Obedience leads to blessing. We don't become God's children by obedience. We know from John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them gave he right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. We don't become children by obeying, but without obedience, you will not enjoy being his child. I'll say it again. We don't become his children by obeying, but without obedience, you will not enjoy being his child. You will not enjoy the blessing of the God of peace. This is a sweet promise here. The God of peace will be with you. Paul is describing how you can be confident of the approval of God, the approval of the God of peace, regardless of your circumstances. That going through the worst trials, you can know that God is smiling upon you. That you can enjoy the warmth of, of his smile. That fatherly affection, even in the midst of suffering. That you can know he is pleased with you. Even while Paul, writing this letter, is sitting in prison, as Christians are out there preaching the gospel, in some form, trying to stir up trouble for him. Sitting on death row, not even knowing if, he, if he's going to be killed for his confession of Christ. And he can say, the God of peace is with me. Right? Like, like, like that is confidence of God's approval. It's not just looking back and saying, well, I know I became a Christian. It's like, I'm, I'm and, and to some extent, and I'm going to say this cautiously, this is your best life now. Thinking and doing and obedience to God's commands it isn't about the, the physical blessings you get or the fancy cars that you get to drive or the size of your bank account or how healthy you are or how obedient your children are. It's knowing that you have the blessing of God's approval on your life. That's the blessing of the God of peace being with you. And shepherding your child's heart, uh, Ted Tripp uses a concept called the circle of a blessing. And some of us have, have taken a, a, a parenting class that may have used, used that concept. And it's the idea that when a child is obedient, they are within a circle of blessing. They are enjoying a right relationship with their parents. It is safe there. There is good communion with their father. They can go and sit on their parents' laps. It's enjoyable. But when that child is re in rebellion, they take themselves outside of that circle of blessing they do not enjoy a relationship with their father. It's about consequences of getting that child back into that circle of blessing. Now, when that child steps outside the circle of blessing, are they no longer a child? No, they're still your child. 
We are still God's children when we disobey, but we are not in that circle of blessing. We are not enjoying his blessing. And that's why I wanted to talk about, you know, we're not talking about a, a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel here, a false gospel that promises all kinds of physical blessings in this life, freedom from suffering and freedom from pain and freedom from sickness. We're talking about the God's approval, the blessing of the God of peace, the God who will bring eternal Peace and all those blessings, even in this world as we have suffering. So the question for you is, are you enjoying the approval of your God of peace? Is he with you? Are you enjoying your relationship with him through Jesus Christ? When you are obeying God's command in verses 8 and 9 to dwell and to practice, to think and to do, you are living inside the circle of blessing. You are confident of God's approval. And I wanted to talk about this motivation for discipline, thinking and doing first, so that you'll be motivated by the promise, that you'll look at it and say, I want God's smile. And we're, again, not talking about earning God's approval. We're talking about enjoying being his child, so that you will look and say, I want to enjoy that blessing. I want to know the God of peace is with me. That's why Paul says this. He wants to motivate you, because he knows his heart. He's, he's going to say, do the things that I do. And you're like, wow, that's tough, Paul. So he wants to motivate us, and it's my prayer that you'll see the desirability of this command with such clarity that you're going to leave committed to new patterns of thinking and doing. And also that, 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 that you'll shudder at the thought of missing out on this blessing. Now, uh, I do want to review quickly disciplined thinking. In uh, Philippians 4.8, it says... Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The word dwell, again, means, means to think, to reckon, to calculate. And I read a, 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 a couple quotes I'm going to re-say because as I was reading through last message, I found these, these just summarize really well what it means to dwell and to think. So, so from one commentator to ponder, to give proper weight and value to, and then to allow the resultant appraisal to influence the way life is to be lived. So you're looking at truth, you're thinking about it, you're giving proper weight to it, you're valuing it, and you're allowing that appraisal to influence the way that you live. Another commentator said, take into account, to reflect upon, and to allow these things to shape your conduct. Dwelling is meditation concerned with implementation. It's reflection with an eye to application. So as you've been thinking this last week, I hope you came to the same conclusion that I did. What most obviously satisfies these six characteristics of true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and of good repute? If you want to find something that has all of those characteristics, it's going to be God's character. It's going to be God's word. It's going to be the good news of Jesus Christ. It's going to be the commands of God. All of those encapsulate, as what Paul says, if there is any excellence, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, it's there. So think on those things. But our thinking, and, and it's built into this word, shouldn't it stay just thinking? 
You know, we shouldn't just be doing some, some speculative theology as we ask ourselves really tough questions about what God can and can't do or try to figure out the inner workings of the Trinity. Now, there's a time and place for good theology, but our thinking should lead to doing. Our thinking should lead to doing. And this leads us to the command to disciplined doing. In both 8 and 9, Paul follows the content with the command. And uh, uh, last week, I'd originally planned on teaching the command first and giving the content. From talking to a couple of you, I should have kept it that way. I went to the content first and then the command. So although Paul puts the command after the content, we're going to put the, con- the command first and then the content. So last week, Paul said, dwell on these things. And this week, Paul says, practice these things. So what does it mean to practice? Practice is an, 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 an interesting word uh, to translate this Greek word. When I think of the English word practice, I think of repeating an activity again and again with the purpose of improving it, right? Like practicing the piano, practicing a cartwheel, for all those who do practice that. Nora's been talking about that. Paul's Greek word, though, doesn't have the idea of improving. It doesn't have the idea of doing something again and again until you get better at it. But it does have the idea of doing something as a pattern. Now, like, that's where the English word do just kind of falls short, right? If, if he says, uh, the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, do them. Well, is it built in there that you should, be, that you should keep doing them? And so I like this word practice. Practice them. Not, not, and it's not bad to get better at them. But it's not like the, the idea of this is a skill you're going to perfect. But that this needs to be the habit of your life. Keep doing them. Now, before we look at what, what these things are, be aware this is a command. This is God's command to you. It's not my command to you. It's God's command to you. This is not an optional activity. You will be a good follower of Jesus Christ. You'll be a pleasing child of your Father in heaven. The God of peace will be with you if you obey these two commands. Once again, it's not the grounds of our acceptance by our Father, but it is evidence of our adoption. Not the grounds of our acceptance, but evidence of our adoption. So what are these things that we need to be in the habit of doing, that we need to practice? The content of of discipline doing, we're going to look at in verse 9a, the content of discipline doing. It says, the things you have learned and received. Paul commanded the Philippians, do the things you have learned. And no doubt includes God's proclamation of the gospel. His expositing the Old Testament. His teaching on Sundays, his teaching house to house, his teaching in one-on-one discipleship, the letters he wrote. It was whatever Paul taught about, his teaching about men's and women's roles, about relationships in the church, relationships in home, relationships in the marketplace, about elder elder qualifications, and the relationship between sheep and elders, and a myriad of other instructions. As an apostle, Paul's teaching was authoritative for the church. Today, our authority is limited to God's word. We don't have apostles giving out authoritative instruction. The elders don't have authoritative instruction in themselves. It is limited to what God's word says. We can only teach as God's word what God actually says in his word. As we instruct one another, we can, we can suggest how to apply We can discuss different ways to apply. We can encourage toward a specific application. 
but the authority is in God's word. And it's God's word as correctly interpreted, what it actually means. So the question we have to ask yourself is, have you learned from God's word what he has required of you? This is not a bad thing. Like, sometimes we think, oh, requirements are bad. No, this is really where freedom is. This is where, where you have freedom to exercise creativity. Have you learned what God has required from you? Fathers and mothers, have you learned what God has required of you? The Bible has instructions for you. Husbands and wives, have you learned what God has required from you? The Bible has instructions for you. Do you know what you need to be as a neighbor, as a citizen, in your relationship as a sheep to under-shepherds, the elders? The Bible has instructions for you. Do you know what to do with your time, your financial resources, your spiritual gifts? The Bible has instructions for you. God isn't playing hide-and-seek with you. He's not making it hard. He gives you instructions. So what are we to do? Be in the habit of doing them. There, is, there really is freedom and creativity and joy and the blessing of the God of peace being with you. So we get to embrace these good gifts of the commands he gives. Children, do you know what God has required from you? The Bible has instructions for you. Paul builds upon the verb learned with the next word received. Now, one meaning of received is to take responsibility for something. If you receive a package for someone at work, it's no longer the UPS's responsibility. It's now your responsibility, right? You've received it. It's been entrusted to you. But the other use is to agree with, to accept, and to approve of. And an example of that is when, some, when somebody humbly receives being co 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 corrected or a rebuke, excuse me. Both usages are possible in this passage. It could be you've received this body of instructions to now pass, pass it on. But I believe Paul is primarily referring to the acceptance, to our approval of what he taught. Several times Paul refers to the believers receiving his instruction. Examples, 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus... That is, you received from us instruction, as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. You received instruction how to walk and please God. You accepted it. You approved of it. You looked at it and said, yes, this is good. I submit to this. What is your attitude toward the instruction you have been receiving in God's word? Have you been someone who approves of God's command? And seeks to implement them? Or have you been sluggish to comply? Have you been slow to apply them? Are you a receiver of God's commands or a rejecter? Are you submitted to them or always kind of a skeptic? Always kind of questioning, well, do I really have to? If you want the presence of the God of peace, if you want the confidence of God's approval... You will learn, you will receive, and you will do the commands of Scripture. Have you been a good student of God's Word? Have you been a good disciple? I mean, a good disciple, a good discipler too. But have you been a good disciple? Or have you been smiling and nodding, but not really serious about applying? I worry 
Some of you are not enjoying the presence of the God of peace because you are, you are refusing to learn. And you're not receiving his, his instructions. You're not submitting to them. So that's the first half of the content of discipline doing, the things you have learned and received, but also the things you have heard and seen in me, Paul says. The things you have heard, it could mean what they heard Paul teach, but that kind of seems to be covered by the first two verbs, what, what has been learned and received. It's more likely what they heard about Paul, because remember, Paul had only been at the church in Philippi for a very short time, uh, before being beaten with, 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 with rods and asked to leave the city. Paul's reputation, though, was consistent with his preaching and teaching. Epaphroditus, who had carried this letter that Paul had written to the Philippians, reported how Paul, while in prison, how he prayed, how he rejoiced, how he proclaimed Christ, how he ministered to the saints. Timothy had visited the church in Philippi, he would also be able to tell Paul's character. The Philippians hadn't just heard, though, about Paul. They had also seen firsthand what Paul's ministry was like. Maybe some of those still sitting in that church had been there when Paul first preached the gospel along that river. And maybe some of those were those who had first received the gospel. Maybe some present there hearing this letter had overheard Paul's singing in prison after, beating, after being beaten with rods after the city revolted against him. See, they had seen Paul. They had seen his work ethic and his prayer life, his zeal to fulfill his apostolic commission that God had given, his labor. They've seen his generosity, his willingness to meet with the brothers, his commitment, his sacrifice. Now, Paul had already called the Philippians to follow his example. In Philippians 3.17, we, we, we learned this a few weeks ago. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have seen in us, you, you have in us. Examples are important. Paul's example was the mirror of his instruction. He taught, but then he lived it out. He taught that God answered prayer, so he prayed diligently. He taught that the church was bought with the precious blood of Christ, and so he served sacrificially. He taught that there would be evaluation and reward with the saints. Revaluation and, and, and reward for the saints when they stood before the Lord. And so he stewarded his gifts, looking forward to standing before Christ. Paul's disciplined thinking led to disciplined doing. His meditation had become movement. His contemplation had become conduct. And his evaluation erupted into effort. He thought and he did. The Philippians had received from the Apostle Paul both instructions and the example. Both the preaching and the pattern. Both the mandate and the model. Notice that this letter wasn't written to apostles. He's not saying, follow my example, other apostles. He's saying, follow my example, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters in Christ, all of you who haven't been called to be apostles, follow my example. We are stewards of the God-given gifts for the good of God's people and for the advance of God's kingdom. Are you following that apostolic example? Are, are you using your gifts? 
whether speaking or serving, for the building up of the body of Christ. That is all of our goal. That is our corporate goal. God has given you gifts, whether they're serving or speaking or a mix of them. And we need to be using them in one another's lives for the building up of the body of Christ. Are you all in, like Paul was, knowing your future reward is coming? So easy to grovel here after the next exciting thing. We have an eternity, an infinite duration of rewards to look forward to. Are you advancing the great commission in the sphere God has placed you in? It may not be as dramatic as Paul, but are you praying for what's the next step, Lord? What's, what's the next step I can take so I can love someone by proclaiming the gospel to them? Are you fulfilling the roles that God has called you to? As, and, 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 and that was one of my big, big takeaways from looking at Romans 15 as we've been doing in care groups recently. You know, it's all about Paul, how God worked through the Apostle Paul to fulfill his apostolic commission. What is that for us? Well, God has given you roles. He's given you jobs to do. Are you, are you fulfilling them? Are you embracing your role as a dad? Your role as a wife? Are you embracing your role as a, as, as a brother or sister in Christ? Are you embracing your role as an elder or as a sheep? With that same discipline with which that Paul fulfilled his role? See, if you are in, the, in Christ Jesus, you have the same resources that Paul had. You don't have, I mean, like, like he didn't have like a special conduit of grace, you know, like, like, like the rest of us have, have little tubes to Christ, and he had this giant, really wide tube, so he could get a lot of grace. Not that we have tubes of grace, but we are in Christ Jesus. We have the same indwelling spirit. We have the same resources that Paul had. In Romans 15, 18, Paul says, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. If you are in Christ Jesus, Christ is accomplishing through you. But we have to have disciplined thinking followed by disciplined doing. There are some of you, honestly, that Christ is not accomplishing much through. Because you're on the sidelines. You're, you're, you're not in the game. Paul's disciplined thinking led to disciplined doing. There's an often repeated phrase in biblical counseling. We do what we do because we want what we want. And I think we... we we know that's true, right? You know, we follow our, our motives. We want ice cream, so we get ice cream. We do what we do because we want what we want. We want what we want because we think what we think. We think that the ice cream is going to be satisfying, and it often is, right? But when you think, wait, I'd like to live a long life so I can parent my children to the time when they graduate from high school, you may say no to ice cream. You may think something different. You want something different, and you do something different. So I'm going to say that phrase again because it really applies to this passage here. We do what we do because we want what we want. Like, wind back the tape. Why do you do what you do? Because you want what you want. And why do you want what you want? Because you think what you think. Until you discipline your thinking, you will not discipline your doing. Until you discipline your thinking, you will not discipline your doing. And until you discipline your doing, you won't enjoy what? The presence of the God of peace. The God of peace brought peace to you through the gospel of peace. He will bring forever peace to this earth under the reign of the Prince of Peace. But have you been enjoying his presence as you discipline your thinking and doing? And 
many of you can say, yes, I have been. This has been a refreshing time in my life. My thinking has been saturated with God's word. I've been loving meditating on the gospel. I've been delighting in his commands. I finally get Psalm 119, why he says that about his commands again and again and again. I wake up and I, and I want to find out how I can obey God. And that thinking you know in your life overflows into discipline doing. But maybe some of you haven't been enjoying the God of peace. You haven't been in confident of his approval because you haven't really been doing you haven't really been practicing the things you've learned and received and heard and seen in me. Maybe there's areas in your life you know you're outside of God's will. You're not going to be enjoying the presence of the God of peace. You know, I, I, was, I was thinking about this as I was driving. If you're breaking the speed limit and texting on your phone, are you confident that the God of peace will be with you? You're not, right? Now, maybe you don't think about it, but if you did think about it, you're like, uh... This is foolish. Like, like really, I've, I've taken myself outside the circle of blessing here, and I am inviting consequences. As we have disciplined thinking and disciplined doing, the God of peace will be with you. Now, again, that is not to say that if you're not doing that, your life is going to fall apart. Or it's not saying that because your life is falling apart, you're not doing that. Now, Paul went through incredible suffering. So that he could understand the sufficiency of Christ. That he could understand, my grace is sufficient for you. That's the God of peace being with you. The God of peace being with you will still allow you to go through unimaginably hard things. But that you can go through those hard things, like Paul in prison. Waiting trial before crazy Nero. And say, the God of peace is with me. Right? And that's what we want for you. For you to be going through the myriad of trials you're going through and saying, the God of peace is with me. I am thinking on God's truth. I am dwelling on God's truth. I am practicing the commands that God has given. The God of peace is with me. We know that having it all doesn't mean you have peace. A myriad of blessings doesn't mean having God's blessings, despite what any number of false teachers teach. Owning your ideal home, attaining your target salary, garnering the world's attention are not evidence that the God of peace is with you. None of those are evidence that the God is peace with you. Being married is not mar evidence of the God of peace. Athleticism is not evidence of the God of peace. Health, creativity, children, investments. You can have all these blessings and not have the God of peace. There is not a correlation there. Many walk apart from the God of peace. They have no peace and they have all those blessings. Do you want the God of peace to be with you? Do you want peace in the midst of, of your hurricane, in the midst of your tornado, and all those circumstances that seem to be going so awry that the world would look at and say, your God doesn't love you? And you can say, no, the God of peace is with me. How does that happen? Then continue as you began your Christian walk. Continue as you began your Christian walk. See, when you became a Christian... You believed that what God commands is better than what the world promises, right? The treasure buried in the field was worth giving up everything for. It was worth dying to yourself, picking up your cross and following him. It was worth being submitted and teachable to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You came to him and said, yes, Lord, I follow, I'll follow. There's peace nowhere else. I submit to you. And that, that's how we enjoy the God of peace still. It's how we are reconciled in a right relationship with him, by believing in him. And it's how we continue in that right relationship, believing God so much that you are willing to follow Jesus Christ, that you are willing to dwell on the truth of Jesus Christ, and that you are willing to practice the commands of Jesus Christ. That's what saving faith was when you were saved, and that's what saving faith still is. So continue as you began. Think these things. Do these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we are uh, we're dumbfounded by the mystery of you. Your attributes are not like ours. Um, we see maybe reflections of them um, at times, Lord, but, but, but we're surprised that you would want to have peace with your enemies, Lord, that you would sacrifice your own son so that we could be reconciled to you, Lord. And, uh, Father, we confess how, how slow we can be, how distrustful, how doubtful, how slow to uh, pick up our cross and follow, how slow we are at times to buy in, Lord, how slow we are uh, to look at your commands as beautiful, Lord. These are beautiful commands here. You don't, you don't, you don't command us to, to think on what's, what's miserable and what's disgusting, but on what is, what is beautiful and true and pure and righteous, Lord. What's commendable. And, 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 and you don't tell us uh, to, to, to do cruel things, Lord. Your, your, your commands are good. Lord, we see them in, in your word. And, 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 and even the world at times wants to mimic them. We're supposed to love our enemies. We're, su we're supposed to rejoice in you. To be in harmony. To agree the same thing with our brothers and sisters. To have a gentleness that's evident to all. Father, your commands are good. And so we pray, Lord, for, um, for submissive hearts, but also believing hearts. And I know that belief and submission are inseparable. If we believe you, we're going to submit to you. And if we submit to you, we're going to believe you. Give us believing, submissive hearts that are willing to follow you with 100%, to look at the rest of our day and say, Lord, I'm going to think your things and do your commands. I'm going to think what's pleasing to you. And do what's pleasing to you. I'm going to discipline my thinking and discipline my doing. Lord, I don't, want to, uh, I don't want us to spend one minute walking outside of your presence, Lord. We want to enjoy the blessing that you have purchased for us with the blood of Christ. We want to enjoy the blessing of you, the God of peace, being with us. I want that for my brothers and sisters. Lord, I want it to be so obvious that those outside, uh, those who, I mean, we, we know those who sometimes who, I mean, this, this, as suicide is becoming an increasingly prevalent thing, Lord. Lord, I pray that they would see our peace and want to know the hope that we have. Help us to believe and to submit to you and to take these commands seriously, to be persuaded by this blessing. Thank you that you give us promises in your word, Lord. We do pray for those who entered this morning as your enemies willing to believe in the sufficiency of your death in their behalf, maybe holding to their own goodness, or maybe unwilling to submit to your commands. We do not have peace with you, Lord. I pray that the terror 
of your forever presence to punish and would drive them to the cross of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.